get to the Word of God, shall we? Turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. While you're finding your place there, I'm going to share with you a little account. You may be familiar with this account, this news story. Spending 735 days detained in Turkey before being released last year, thanks to the United States diplomatic pressure, North Carolina missionary Andrew Brunson became somewhat of a hero in the eyes of many American evangelicals for standing strong in his faith despite persecution. And again, he was detained for over two years, 735 days. However, the 51-year-old Brunson admits that there were times throughout the ordeal that he questioned whether God had picked the right man for this assignment or not. Having spent months in one overcrowded cell with Muslim cellmates, Brunson had opened up about how he felt at times without access to his family or to a Bible. At one point, he was in a cell designed for somewhere between three to five people. There were 23 men in that cell. He often felt that God had turned him over to Satan. And although Brunson was an innocent man, doubts crept into his mind and early on about whether or not he would ever get out of prison. But beyond the physical and the emotional challenges... The greatest struggle was the spiritual struggle that Brunson faced when he was imprisoned in an overloaded cell at Sacron High Security Prison. In Sacron Prison, where he was moved to, there were no communal spaces and there were no daily activities for inmates. So for the most part, inmates were forced to stay in their cells without much to entertain them. On Mondays, though, prisoners in Brunson's cell were allowed to have family visits. And so on that first Monday that Brunson was at the prison, he was excited at the chance to finally see his wife, Noreen, and his lawyer. However, he was the only one from his cell who was not allowed to have visitors that day. Brunson, not having seen his wife for weeks at that point, went out into the prison yard and paced, and he looked up to the sky, and he saw these high walls surrounding him, and he felt like he was at the bottom of this pit. At that point, he voiced his frustration with God. You've betrayed me. You've turned me over. Why? How could you do this to a son who loves you, to a son who has obeyed you, Brunson recalled questioning the Lord. Do you even care? Or have you handed me over and walked away? Did you deceive me, God? Did you lie to me? You have turned me over to be savaged. Adding that the only thing he heard when he cried out to God like that was silence. And while he had heard many stories of Christians imprisoned by the government in China who were 
joyful for the closeness to the Lord they felt during their imprisonments. Brunson, or Brunson said he didn't experience that type of closeness to God when he was locked away. How could I be so broken by prison, he asked himself. What was wrong with me? I said time and again, God, you chose the wrong man. I'm broken. Why would he put me in a place where I would start to believe that it's harder to live for God than it is to die for him? My friends, there comes a time in each of our lives when God is going to test you. There will be many scenarios in which we are tested by God. It may be a test where he commands you to give up your heart's desire simply because he asks you to. Maybe it's moving to a distant land away from family and friends or away from the comforts that you're used to. God has promised us his very best. He has assured us that all things work together for good to those that love him. True faith goes into operation, my friends, when there are no answers. True faith, persevering faith, is obedient even when we don't know why God is testing us. Now, hopefully you have found your place now in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 17 this morning. I want to remind you, since it's been a couple of weeks, we began this chapter looking at the examples of faith that the author of Hebrews, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has provided for us. And we've seen already how to worship by faith from the life of Abel. We saw how to walk by faith through the life of Enoch. And then over the last few weeks, we've even looked at how to wait by faith through the lives of Abraham and Sarah. So in verses 8 to 10, we saw that we must wait by faith even when we don't know where God is calling us to. Then in verses 11 through 11 and 12, we saw that we must wait by faith even if we don't know how God is going to fulfill his promises. We saw that actually demonstrated in the lives of Abraham and Sarah as they waited for God to fulfill his promise of an heir through whom Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the night sky. In verses 13 through 16, we saw that we're to wait upon God even when we don't know when he will fulfill his promises. But today, we'll see from our text, we are to wait upon God even when we don't know why he has tested us. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Asking to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, again for the immense privilege I have to open up your truth and to share with these dear saints the truth of your word. I ask, Lord, as always, that you would give us open hearts and open minds to your truth. That we wouldn't just hear this truth and be thinking about somebody else that needs to hear this, somebody else that this needs to be applied to. But as always, Lord, as your children, we would hear the truth of your word and ask ourselves, Oh, Father, what would you have me do with this? 
how should I apply this to my life first? Lord, that's our heart's desire here this morning. I pray that you'll be with us in this hour. Be in our midst, Lord. Give us that understanding so we may apply it to our life in a way that pleases you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. We're only going to look at just the first couple words here, and then I'm going to move you to another chapter here in the Old Testament. So keep your thumb here. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested... And that is our very first point, 17a, God will test our faith. You heard me correctly. I didn't say God might test your faith or there's a possibility God might test your faith or there's the potential that God will test your faith. No, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God will test your faith. Now, we find the familiar story of Abraham and Isaac, and we remember if that is in Genesis chapter 22. So hold your thumb there in Hebrews and go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22. A very familiar story for us. And in verses uh, 1 through 12, let's look at that. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I, I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place on which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac, and they laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So the first thing we see in this text in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 2 is that God tested him. Now, what do we know about what happens when God tests us? Well, there's a couple things we know from Scripture when our faith is tested. Scripture tells us that we will never be, be tested beyond what we can bear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, many of you 
Know this by heart. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with that temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. That word temptation comes from the same Greek verb that's translated tested. You could actually take 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and say, no testing has overtaken you or no trial has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Oftentimes when we get into a trial, we think, I'm the only one in the world that's going through this. Nobody's ever had it this bad, and nobody's, nobody has, has gone through My trial is very unique. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us, no, no, you're not the only person from the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation that's ever gone through something like this. And guess what? Some have even gone through much worse. But God is faithful which means he's always there. And when you call out to him, he hears you. He never promises that you won't go through trials. Matter of fact, he promises you just the opposite. But he does promise that you'll never have to go through it alone, that he will be with you. And he will not give you more than what you can bear. You're going to, he's going to provide a way out. You'll be able to stand up under it through this testing, through this trial, even through a temptation. Secondly, we know that God's purpose in testing our hearts is to reveal the intentions of our hearts. Let me give you a little example here. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8 for just a second. Deuteronomy chapter 8. That's an interesting verbiage here. Listen to this. Verse 2. I'll just pick it up from verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. Verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, Psalm 94, verse 11, tells us that God knows your thoughts. Beloved, why does God need to send them into the desert to reveal the intentions of their heart or their thought? If he already knows their thoughts. Well, the answer is, he's not revealing their thoughts and their intentions to him, but to them. You see, our hearts are deceptive, desperately wicked. Who can know it except God? And so oftentimes we fool ourselves into thinking that we're better than what we are. We always position ourselves in the right position. We're always on the right side of the argument. 
So God tests us to reveal the intentions of our hearts. And his purpose in that testing is to, to prove to us and to others around us, perhaps even, the genuine quality of our faith. The test shows how strong our faith is. And if we submit to God in the test by trusting him, our faith will grow even stronger. Now, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2 now, remember he said, take now your son, your only son. Take your son, but that's not all. He said, take your only son. Now, God did not forget that Ishmael was also his son. But his meaning was that Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac, the son for whom Abraham and Sarah had waited 25 years, and then he added, whom you love. Isaac, your son, your only son, whom you love. God is letting Abraham know that he knew exactly what he was telling Abraham to do, and he understood exactly the cost that he was asking Abraham to pay for him to be obedient. So let's just be very clear about what God is asking him at this point. He wants Abraham to travel with his son to Mount Moriah, which today is called Jerusalem, and build an altar of stones on that mountain, and then to make a platform of wood on top of those stones. And then Abraham and Isaac are to lie, was to ask Isaac to lie down on the wood, and then he would take a knife and kill Isaac in the same way that a sacrificial lamb would be slain. Finally, he would light the wood, burning his son's body as an offering to God. This is what God has commanded Abraham to do. At that point, Abraham only has two options, right? He's either going to obey or not. If you stop to argue, then that in itself is a form of disobedience. If you try to talk God out of it, if you try to offer an Alternative plan, that also is a form of disobedience. Notice in Genesis 22, verse 3, Abraham's faith produced immediate obedience. What does he do? Early the next morning, he he got up and saddled his donkey. He doesn't know why this is going on. He doesn't really even understand why God would ask him to do such a thing. God knows how much he loves his son. God knows how much this is going to cost him. Why, oh, why would God ask him to sacrifice so much for his obedience to him? But notice he doesn't stall. He doesn't waffle. He doesn't waver. He gets up. No arguing with God, no bargaining, no alternative plan. But I'm sure every fiber of his body was rebelling about what God was calling him to do, to do. And I'm sure his feet felt like lead, but he did not turn aside. He took one step after another towards what God had told him to do. My friends, tests are going to come. First Peter 4, 12 and 13. Not to think it strange at the fiery ordeal that tests us so that we might share the sufferings of Christ and have increased joy at the thought and the return of Christ. James tells us in James 1.12, we are blessed if we are under trial. Paul goes as far to exhort us in Romans 5 to rejoice in our tribulations because of what they accomplish in us as we stand by faith in the grace of God. 
the author of Hebrews here, he's not disagreeing regarding tests and trials. He just wants us to understand that when the believer is tested, either by the word or by inward weakness or by external circumstances, so is your faith. Every time you are tested, it is a test of your faith. And when faith is tested, it is always a call to look to the Lord and discover your sufficiency and dependency upon him every single time. Point number one, God will test your faith. God will test your faith. Let's look at the point number two then. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 17. The second part of verse, chapter 11, I'm sorry. And we see that in the second part of verse 17 and verse 18. Do you see that there? Let's read that together. So by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Point number two, the greatest test of our faith requires a sacrifice of what is most precious to us. The greatest test of our faith requires a sacrifice of what is most precious to us. I think it would have been easier for Abraham if God had asked him to give up his life. He's 100 years old at this point. He's probably thought, I've, I've lived a wonderful life. God has blessed me. God saved me. Why not ask for my life? Why his life? It might have been even easier if he just said, I'm, gonna, I'm asking you and Sarah's life than to give up his son's life. Notice in the second part of verse 17, it refers to Abraham as he who had received the promises. Remember, That's the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. We find in Genesis chapter 12, and then ratified again in in chapters 15 and 17. Notice again, God had repeatedly promised to make of Abraham a great nation. And Abraham and Sarah had waited 25 years from when he was 75 until he was 100 for God to give them Isaac, the son of promise. And after waiting so long, with no hope of any other fulfillment, God finally gave them the special son, but now he tells Abraham to kill his his own long-awaited son. Notice the text says that Abraham was offering up his only begotten son. A lot of people get confused by that word begotten. Abraham had fathered Ishmael, and he would have other sons through Keturah. You can find that in Genesis chapter 25. That word begotten is the same term that the Gospel of John uses about Jesus, who is God's unique son in a way that no one else is or could be. Imagine for a moment Abraham's hopes for Isaac, the unique son of God's promise. That's what that word begotten means. It means of highest priority or unique is what that word begotten means, monogenesis who had been miraculously conceived after all human hope was gone. Then to add to the difficulty, look at verse 18 in Hebrews chapter 11. 
In Isaac, your descendants shall be called. How confusing this must be to Abraham as he's listening to this. Why would God have him sacrifice Isaac through whom the promise of all these innumerable descendants would come? I mean, with the exception of Jesus going to the cross, God has never given a more difficult command to anyone. Later in Genesis chapter 2, he says, you remember when I read that? You have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You have not withheld from me. God says, I asked for your most precious possession, and you gave it to me. My friends, how easy would it have been for Isaac to be an idol for Abraham? He's the one. We waited a century for him. We waited 25 years after we found the promise. He's the one that God is going to fulfill all of his promises through. Let's take care of him no matter what. You know, an idol is anything you put in the place of God. We tend to associate idols with the statues made of gold, silver, and wood. We talked about this in uh, Daniel, didn't we, in Daniel chapter 3. But an idol doesn't need to be a statue. An idol can be something good. Can your spouse be an idol? Yes, you could. Love your spouse more than you love Jesus? Can your family be an idol? Yes. Can your children be idols? Yeah. Can your money be an idol? Can your ministry be an idol? Can your career be an idol? Yes, 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 yes. Elizabeth Elliot makes the point that the process of Christian growth is one in which God breaks the idols of our life one by one by one. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Oh, how painful it is by definition how much we love our idols. We protect them because they give us strength and hope and meaning. And that's the real challenge of this story. Abraham had come to a place where he was willingly gave back to God what was Always God's in the first place. God wants the absolute, my friends, listen closely. He wants the absolute first place in your heart. Not 1B, not 1C, not 2A. He wants priority number one. He wants to be A1A. That's it. There is no other level. There is no other devotion that God will accept. The greatest test of our faith requires a sacrifice of what is most precious to us. It is a severe test of our faith when he takes something precious from us. So God, point number one, God will test our faith. Point number two, God, the greatest test of our faith requires a sacrifice of what is most precious to us. But how did Abraham respond to the test? Two words, by faith. Look at verse 19 then in Hebrews chapter 11. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Point number three, when we are tested by faith, we trust that God will fulfill his promises. When we are tested by faith, 
We trust that God will fulfill his promises. Abraham's faith in God was so great, he thought, if God wants me to kill Isaac to keep his promise, then God is going to have to raise him from the dead. I can't think of any other way that this is going to happen. And that is amazing in that there were no resurrections from the dead in the world history at this point. But this is what Abraham is thinking. I don't know why God has put me in this place. I don't even know how he's going to accomplish it because he's already made these promises to me that Isaac is the son of promise. But I know this. I need to obey even if I don't know why. That Greek word says that he considered. See that in there? He considered. That's a that's a Greek word, logizomai. It's where we get our word logarithm from, and it means to calculate or to reckon or to consider. Abraham didn't blindly take a leap of faith. Rather, he considered God's attributes and character. He considered that God is loving and just and mighty that he never deceives us, and that he's faithful to keep his promises. And God had promised that in Isaac, Abraham's descendants would be numbered. And Isaac didn't yet have any children when that promise was made. And yet God, now that he does have the promise heir to God's promise, has commanded Abraham to sacrifice him. Therefore, God must be planning to raise Isaac from the dead. What incredible reasoning by faith that is. He doesn't say, I'm not, I don't understand why, so I'm just not going to do anything. You notice that? He doesn't until God makes that clear to me, crystal clear, then I'll obey. And he doesn't say that either. It says that Abraham reckoned, he considered. You know what he considered? He said, I know who God is. I know he's true. I know his character. I know he's loving and just and merciful and long-suffering and gracious. And because I know that, I don't know how he's going to do this. I don't even know why he has asked me to do this, but I'm going to obey. I'm going to obey my God because I know who he is and I know his promises are true. My friends, Abraham's thought process shows us how to work through any trial, any testing of faith that we encounter. Because Satan will inevitably try to get us to doubt or deny some aspect of God's character or his attributes. He got Eve to doubt God's goodness by implying that God was keeping something back from them. He sometimes tempts us in times of trial to doubt God's love. You know, if he really loved you, Satan would plant that little thought in your head. If he really loves you, he wouldn't, he wouldn't require you to do such a painful thing. He wouldn't require that you suffer the way you've been suffering for so long, physically or emotionally or spiritually. Those are the things that Satan likes to put in your head is to get you to doubt God's love, to doubt his character, to doubt his word, to doubt who he is, to doubt whether his promises are true. That's why Paul affirms in Romans chapter 8, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. 
Other times he tries us to get God's to doubt God's sovereignty. He'll he'll plant this thought in your head. A good and loving God wouldn't permit that kind of trial that you're going through. But Abraham provided the living example of saving faith, did he not? Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. He didn't know why. He didn't even know how. In the beginning, he didn't know where. He didn't even know when. But he knew God. And that's all he needed. And that's the formula for us, my friends. We don't always have to know all the details. True faith is when we act and are obedient even when we don't know all the answers. He knew that God was a rewarder of those who seek him. Abraham, by faith, says, even though my current situation seems to go against God's love and goodness based on his promises to me, I trust he will work all that together for good because I know my God. And there's something else that he factored into the equation as well. He considered the power of God. He considered that God is able. That word is dunatos, is where we get our word dynamite from. He's talking about God's power to be able to do things. Nothing is impossible for God. And so Abraham, by faith, offered up Isaac. He considered the promises of God and the command of God and applied what he knew about God to the situation. And he considered that God is able or powerful enough to raise men even from the dead. He believed that God could do the impossible and concluded that perhaps God would raise him from the dead. The text doesn't say that Abraham knew God would do it. He just simply thought it was possible because with God, all things are possible. In saying that God was able to raise men from the dead, Abraham is saying that this whole situation is God's problem, if you will. This is what God has commanded me to do. I don't need to know how he's going to do it. I don't even know why I'm tested in this way. I certainly don't need to know how or whether God is capable of doing it because I already know my God is. It's interesting, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, I have it underlined in my Bible. Abraham said to the young man with him before he left to sacrifice Isaac, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go yonder, and we, we will worship, and we will return to you. Abraham believed that somehow... He was going to return with Isaac. He didn't rationalize his way into disobedience. He reasoned his way into obedience. Lastly, notice the writer says that Abraham received Isaac back from the dead as a type, or literally the word is parable. In Abraham's mind, Isaac was as good as dead. So when God held him back from sacrificing Isaac, it was like a resurrection to him. A parable is a story to learn from, and the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac has been passed on through the ages as a testimony of faith, but it's also a picture, isn't it, of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a parable. It's a story with a heavenly meaning. My friends, Abraham was given a test. How did his faith work in that test? 
He obeyed God despite the fact that that he did not, there did not seem to be any earthly solution to how God would stay true to his word. He knew what, he knew where, he knew when, he even knew how, but he did not know why. That's how it is with us at times. We see a test in our lives, and we begin to try and figure out the best solution apart from God. Even if we know our solution will not fix it. And rather than acting on faith as we obey God, we panic or we flee or we simply disobey and do nothing. We rationalize our disobedience instead of reasoning through the promises of God in obedience. And then on top of all that, we lament the fact that we have to go through another trial. Sometimes I think the Lord says, I just put you through this last testing so that you would recognize your heart and recognize your dependency upon me. And you would run to me with my arms open to you so that I can grow you and increase your faith in me so you can see me work and cause all things to happen to good. But instead, you panicked, you fleed, you did nothing in stubborn disobedience. So here's another trial. Let's try this again. And let's try it again. And let's try it again. Our God is gracious and loving and long-suffering. Remember, He's not doing that so that he knows your hearts. He already knows your hearts. It's so that we will recognize our hearts. One of the things we notice about Abraham's life is that he endured and persevered to the end by faith. And this is what testing is designed to produce in our lives. James 1.2 says, Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. The pure joy that James speaks of is not the trial itself, right? I mean, none of us go, yeah, I've got disease. Yeah, I'm in a lot of pain. None of us say that. What is James saying? He's saying, what you should do is say, Lord, you've given me an opportunity to recognize what's in my heart and to run to you in obedience and to grow in my faith as I become more and more dependent upon you and recognize my complete, your complete sufficiency and my complete dependency upon you. That's what Abraham understood, my friends. He understood that God is going to test our faith. And he understood that the greatest test of our faith requires a sacrifice of something that's most precious to us. And lastly, he understood that when we are tested by faith, we trust that God will fulfill his promises. Well, Let me close with giving you the end of Pastor Brunson's story, shall we? 
In July of 2017, following a meeting between President Erdogan and U.S. President Donald Trump, Brunson was moved to a less crowded maximum security prison where he shared a cell with only one or two other people as opposed to well over a dozen, which is where he got in the second one. And there he had continuity in being allowed to receive books and the Bible. God spoke to me many times through the Bible, just challenging me and showing me my own heart, Pastor Brunson said. And so when I didn't have a Bible, I had to keep my heart focused on God. And when I do have the Bible, it's still the same thing. I need to keep my heart focused on God. And then in October of 2018, a court released Brunson on time, served, and he was allowed to return to the United States. We don't know how things were turned out many times, Pastor said, but I do know that you have to make the choice to turn your faith toward God, to not allow offense to grow in your heart and to blame God and let that suffocate your relationship with him. Beloved, God orchestrates all the affairs of your life, the good and the bad, the happy and the sad, to bring us to a place where our faith will be in Christ and Christ alone. Slowly but surely, as we go through life, he weans us away from those idols in this world until there's nothing left but us and God. And through all of this, our Heavenly Father leads us along this pathway to completely trust in him. My friends, you may not know how or when or where or even why, but our mission is to trust in him and to faithfully be obedient to what he's commanded us to do. That is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. Amen? Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, again for the reminder from your text that we will be tested. Lord, I think many times in life we think that we should be exempt from testing somehow, but your word is quite clear. Not that we might be tested or could be tested or potentially, but no, Lord, your word tells us we will be tested. But, Lord, you do that to grow us, 